0: invite and encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 37, Psalm number 37, and if you don't have a Bible, these guys have come to the front, they're going to make their way to the back with Bibles in hand, and just get their attention, they'll get one of those to you, it's marked for you at Psalm 37, so that you can follow along, and keep that Bible as our gift to you, and bring it back each Lord's Day, as we look at God's Word together. And I want to extend a a personalized invitation. Pastor Larry mentioned the newcomer's brunch that is Saturday the 11th, so just in a few weeks, but an invitation from Kim and me to come to our house on that Saturday from 10 to around noon. Uh, We always love those, and we love that venue, that opportunity to be able to meet folks that are particularly who are new to our church. It may be that you're not new to the church, but you've just never been able to come to a, a brunch. We would love to have you in that circumstance as well. So please do avail yourself of that uh, and uh, register for it at our website and we'll look forward to seeing you then. Other than initially giving our lives to Jesus Christ, perhaps the most important step we take in our spiritual lives is to move from turning to God in times of struggle to walking with God and being prepared for struggle. Too many professing Christians live fluctuating lives that are up and down, and they focus on the Lord during the down. When they have a problem, they need one of ubiquitous programs or systems that are embodied in books with titles like Seven Steps to Wholeness or Five Strategies for Happiness, or to get a a temporary spiritual high from attending a, a conference or a retreat. But that approach means that you'll be forever on a roller coaster, always needing a book or a counseling session or a seminar, and never quite achieving a maturity that handles what comes from a reservoir of growth. Now, having said that, believe it or not, I'm not against any of those things. It's why we have materials in our resource center to help with problems. We have people in training now to staff our future counseling center, and we do retreats from time to time. The truth is, the Lord uses difficulties to center us on him because he knows our tendency to do what I described, to drift and to be up and down. We all do and will have challenges, but rather than careening from one to the other but making little to no progress, there's a better way. One that involves a regular and growing relationship with Christ. The knowledge of whom sustains us when, not if, trials and temptations come. That's why the Apostle Paul prayed for people as he did. In his letters in the New Testament, he often gives reports of what he prays for those to whom he's, he's writing. One such example is in the first chapter of his letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 1. He says, I keep asking that the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Now please notice the two purpose clauses in that passage. The first is, so that you may know him better. And in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. You see, friends, the the Christian life is not merely about staying out of trouble. It's about knowing God personally and better. Which then radically changes the way we face trouble. If I know him and I believe what he has in store for me then it shapes me it transforms me we offer you ways at our church to get to know him better by knowing his word better and i urge you in the strongest terms to avail yourself of every opportunity to do that and this objective to know god to know him better and then see its effect in our lives goes all the way back to the first part of the bible the the old testament including the book of psalms that we're studying and the psalm to which I've asked you to turn, Psalm 37, that we'll look at together this morning. But first, let's ask God to help us as we do. Our Father, we are here now before you in uh, these quiet moments, these sacred moments, with the word, the deposit of your truth that you have taken pains to give to us and to put in our hands. And so help us to treat it with the reverence that it deserves. Help every one of us here to focus our minds. Help each of us to quiet our hearts and have them opened to what you tell us. And to be willing to adjust our attitudes and our actions in accordance with what your word says. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now if we're going to move from... Religious Christianity to relational Christianity. That is, if we're going to move from a sort of checklist approach to our walk with God. That says, I go to church, check. I give money, check. I've given the gospel to my kids, check. If we're going to go from a religious Christianity to a relational Christianity then we will need to make as our goal what I say first in the outline that you should have received when you came in. Our goal is to know God. Now in Psalm 37 that Pastor Larry read earlier, and to which I've asked you to turn, we see an age-old temptation in the opening words of verse 1. Do not fret. It's so important that it's mentioned two more times, In the beginning and the foundational portion of this psalm, in verses 7 and 8. And these words, do not fret, literally mean do not get heated. Or we might say, do not get all worked up. Or maybe be cool or chill. (laughs) Or as I've said to you many times, especially over the last several years of political and cultural upheaval, don't wig out. And notice why we might be prone to to freak out in verse 1. Because of those who are evil. And in verse 7, when these evil people, it says, succeed in their ways, they carry out their wicked schemes. So is that relevant for us today? Does it seem that evil is in fact on the march and righteousness in retreat? And that being the case, then what do we do? In our culture, in our day, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount seem very impolitic to many, even Christians. Where he said this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, Persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Notice the focus on the future rather than the present. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven and great is your reward in heaven. And likewise, Psalm number 37 points us to the future rather than present circumstances. Because it reminds us who will win, but who will win in the end. Regarding the wicked, the evil, what's going to happen to them? Verse 2, like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Verse 9, those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. So one way that we free our hearts and minds from the fear that so easily grips us is to look ahead, to remember where all things are headed and who will be at the head. The plans of the wicked come to naught because the God of heaven brings them to naught. Remember that we saw several weeks ago that Psalms 1 and 2 serve as an introduction to the entire book of 150 psalms and psalm 2 says this why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain the king of the earth the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the lord and against his anointed the one enthroned in heaven laughs the lord scoffs at them He rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So how can I laugh in the midst of all that's happening? How can you laugh now? How can we face these days and whatever the days ahead hold for God's people without losing it, without wigging out, without freaking out, without fretting? as our passage says. Well, it requires looking ahead, but it also requires looking up. Looking up to our Lord and who He is, aligning our hearts and our minds with that truth about Him. In fact, if you haven't done that first, look to the Lord and cultivated your relationship with Him, come to know Him better, then those promises of what he's going to do in the future are going to ring hollow because the implicit trust that we should have in his promises isn't going to be there because our knowledge of the one who made them is deficient. So look ahead, yes, but also look up to the Lord. Know God, and rather than fretting then, in the words of today's title at the top of your outline, It's trite, but it's true. If you know God, then you can know peace in the midst of the storm. Now, the remainder of the outline and the remainder of the psalm is built on this foundation of knowing God. And so you see in the other points in the outline, knowing God will, and then there's the blank. Now, I'm going to spend the entirety of our time on this first and foundational point to just know God in general. And then, not much, probably not any time on the others. But those others will automatically result if we get our relationship with God right. And so, before we leave, I'll make sure you get to fill in all the blanks. But then you're on your own as to actually what it all means, okay? Verses 1 through 8 teach us that knowing God, having a, a growing relationship with Him requires five things. Now, these are not actions, they are attitudes toward the Lord. They're not spelled out in your outline, because they're spelled out in the text itself. You don't need to write these attitudes or dispositions out, because you can simply note the verses in which they appear, and I hope you'll look to them often. The five attitudes we should cultivate in our relationship with the Lord are, in verse three, trust. And then in verse four, delight. In verse 5, commit. Now, that sounds like an action, but I'll explain it in a bit. Trust in verse 3. Delight, verse 4. Verse 5, commit. Verse 7, be still. And then in verse 8, to refrain. First of these attitudes that we must have if we are going to avoid the fretting that this psalm talks about is to trust in the Lord Verse 3, now please notice again, as i pointed out a number of times in this series through Psalms, the word Lord there and the fact that all four of the letters are capitalized. And so you should know by now that that means something significant, namely that when it's all caps, it is a translation of a particular name for God, Yahweh. And that's important because Yahweh is the personal name that God gave to his people by which they know him in a way that others outside of his people do not. And notice when the subject is unbelievers rather than God's people, God's people with whom he has a a special relationship, it's not all caps Lord, Yahweh, but rather capital L-O-R-D, a title for God, the Hebrew Adonai. In fact, I believe in verse 13 you have an example of that. Speaking of the world in general, and unbelievers, it's Adonai, rather than the personal name for God. So to know God better, trust in Him, the one with whom you have a special relationship. That is, when the Bible says trust, it's the same as have faith in or believe the Lord. And this, of course, is the beginning of our relationship with God. You'll remember that when... Paul and Silas were in jail and in Philippi and the jailer was alarmed at what had happened by them singing in the night and an earthquake (laughs) coming to free the prisoners. He said, what must I do to be saved? And they said famously, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Many theologians have pointed out helpfully over the years that Faith, trust has three elements to it. Faith, believing, trusting. It has three elements. It has knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge means we have information about the Lord. We have content about Him. Who He is and what He's done. And with that content then, we assent to those truths. We agree with that content. But then there's this third element of trust, whereby we make a personal commitment to Him. And so some have likened it to marriage, in which each partner commits to the other. God has committed Himself to us, and we must commit ourselves to Him. The membership application for our church, it's a single page, and we ask for this commitment with a question that says, are you willing to follow Him the rest of your life? And when we have several folks baptized in a few weeks on November 5th, in the baptism itself, I will ask each one of them, do you promise to follow him in obedience all the days of your life? And the expected answer on the application and in the baptism is, of course, yes. Now, the faith, the believing, the trusting is not our work, but rather what we think of him and his work. But having believed that and assented to its truth, we trust him so that we commit ourselves to him. And it's that last element that separates true believers from false professors. You see, James had much to say in the book of James about this issue of our faith, our trust, our believing. And the reality of that faith is shown by what we do. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by faith, but we're saved by a faith that's evidenced by what we do. And so James said, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You see, absent the commitment to him, the trust in him to follow him, Even the demons believe that. The demons know that there was this man, Jesus, that died on a cross. It just makes no difference. But a true believer places his or her trust in the Lord, and because he is trustworthy, we follow him. And this is why verse 3 of Psalm 37 adds, and do good. Trust in the Lord and do good. One preacher has said it means that the person who is quietly trusting God, will experience the life and power of God in his or her life, and that this new life will express itself by doing good to others. He says, I often say when I'm teaching about faith as the channel of justification or salvation, that there is never any justification without regeneration, and that the one who is regenerated, made spiritually alive, will necessarily lead a new life. In other words, although we are not saved by works, but rather are saved by the grace of God through faith, faith will inevitably express itself in right conduct. To know God means I have an attitude of trust in him that, yes, results in actions, but it starts with believing in his actions for me. The second attitude that's required in order to avoid fear of people and fear of our world To avoid fretting, that second attitude is one of delight. Verse 4, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Too often we think of God as austere and a severe taskmaster. But in fact, he is quite the opposite with regard to his children. It's why the Bible reveals his character qualities. As we have seen in recent weeks in our midweek class, Master Plan for Life, the Bible gives us his character qualities in in two categories that are sometimes called his greatness and his goodness. God's greatness includes those attributes that are his alone, things like his omnipotence, he has all power, omniscience, all knowledge, sovereignty, all authority, his eternality, his immutability, and on it goes. It means that God has no limitations, that he can do as he pleases. Now, that could be terrifying to us if God were malevolent, if God used that for evil ends, if that were his character. But the beauty is that he is benevolent. And the second category of his attributes are those of his goodness, which include things like his grace and his compassion, his mercy, his kindness, his patience, his love. If you want to know what God is like, then look at the God-man, Jesus. Yes, God is holy and and pure and so not like us. And we are to properly revere him, to hold him in awe, to, in biblical language, fear the Lord. But the fear is not a cowering before a slave owner, but rather properly reverencing one who is over us, but in the sense of a child to a loving father. And Jesus embodied both qualities perfectly, the holiness of God and the love of God, or to put it as the Apostle John did. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, now notice, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth, we have a hard time being both. But he is perfectly both. We tend toward unloving holiness or unholy love. But Jesus is holy and loving because in his very character, he deals with us in both grace and truth. If we delight in the Lord, then, verse 4 says, he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, two things about that promise. Delighting in the Lord means he is the ultimate desire of our heart. (laughs) And so delighting in the Lord then changes what we desire. You see, you don't come to the Lord with all of your selfish and fleshly and worldly desires and then say, Lord, I delight in you because it turns out you can give me everything I want and here's my list. But rather, he is at work changing us so that our desires are redirected and found and focused primarily in him. And so the delighting in the Lord changes what we desire. If we delight in the Lord, then we want what he wants. Believing, trusting that he will supply what is best and do it when it is best. So ask yourself, do you have any doubts about that? Do you have doubts as to whether or not God has your back? That God has your best interest at heart? That he will give you your desires to the person who focuses and delights in him? Every time you have doubts about the character of God, dear friends, (laughs) go to the cross of Jesus look at the person of Jesus. There you see embodied, literally, who God is, and you see perfectly what God is like. And will he do all things for his children? You know, the Bible says directly that he will. Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? All things that we need. All things that, yes, we desire when he is the center of our desire. And so you, I, we need to come out of the malaise that too many Christians live in. We delight in the Lord because we trust in the Lord, because we believe in the Lord, because we've seen in the Lord, in the person of the Lord Jesus, precisely what He is like. He is eminently trustworthy. The third of the five attitudes that we bring to our relationship with the Lord to strengthen it is in verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. The Hebrew word translated "commit" means to roll one's way onto God. The figure being, as Old Testament scholar H.C. Leupold said, to quote, "dislodge the burden from your shoulders and lay it on God." So when we say, "Commit." It's committing your way, committing my life, committing my pathway. I'm committing it to you Lord. I'm giving it to you. I'm surrendering it to you. I'm rolling it onto you. And this is what the apostle Peter was thinking about in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7. In fact, he was probably directly referring to this passage in Psalm 37 when he wrote, "Cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you." So commit your way means give your stuff to him because you believe he can be trusted with it. So to test whether you believe he cares for you, if you're a child of God, if you know the true and living God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, then to test whether you believe he cares for you, I challenge you to say out loud to God, you don't love me. You don't care for me. You will not do what's best for me. Now, I know the reason I preface that with this is if you are a believer, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the reason I prefaced it with that is because I know no one who fits in that category can actually say that. Out loud. Now, you think it. You got it buried in your heart. You act according to it. But a true believer cannot do that because you know, in fact, that he does love you, that he does care for you, that he will do what is best. And so I say to you, to say that you love me, you care for me, you do have my best interest at heart. Say that regularly. To put it another way, to know God, friend, You need to be regularly communicating with God, getting to know what he is like and repeating it to him and to yourself. That is meditating. That's what the Bible calls meditating. To mull over these truths over and over again. But if you're a checklist, religious Christianity type, then the only time you get any information about God is when you show up here. And you go through the thing, and we do the stuff, and then you leave. Every day, you've got God's Word available to you to read it, to appropriate it, and to say, God, I believe it. Meditate upon it. The fourth attitude that increases our bond with the Lord, enabling us to know Him better is in verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. This has to do with that looking forward aspect of our relationship with God that I mentioned earlier. We have to be still, that is, not take matters into our own hands, but notice the next line, wait patiently for Him to act where we cannot. Now, we can and must take responsible action in the areas that God has assigned to to each of us. But there are so very many things, friends, that we cannot make happen. And God, of course, can. But He not only does the act, God chooses the time. And we're often pointed in Scripture, as in this psalm, to the future for that time. The truth is, fallenness and fallen people will not be finally dealt with until the end. So unless the Lord returns in our lifetime, it's going to happen after we're gone. So it requires patience, which goes back to the foundation of faith, trust. Do you believe that God is moving all things inexorably on his timetable toward his appointed good end for his people? The last of the five attitudes to cultivating our relationship with God is in verse 8. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Old Testament scholar Peter Craigie says that, that this almost certainly is anger against God. Because that is what can well up within us if we are discontent in our circumstances and what we see around us. But whether it's against God or only against those who are doing wrong, especially doing wrong against us personally, it's a mark of the godly person that he or she is able to maintain a settled and calm frame of mind because they trust in God. And after that, in verse 8, we get that third do not fret. Saying that it, quote, leads only to evil. I'm reminded then in Psalm 37, when it says, in effect, don't take matters into your own hands. Don't in your anger, you resist that. Of Paul's words in Romans chapter 12: Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay says the Lord. So, do you know God? I don't mean, do you know about God? Do you know God? you know him personally so that it shows in your response to the circumstances of your life? Do people look at you and see a calm demeanor in the face of our many uncertainties? Or one that frets? Have you taken matters into your own hands and thrown caution to the wind to support and say and do things that you would not have in the past, because after all, desperate times require desperate measures. And it's so desperate in our culture, we got to grab onto anyone and anything. I said a few weeks ago that desperation is not a good look for a Christian. And this psalm tells us why. Because it betrays a lack of deep relationship with God. And I really think we should listen to what God's servant says here, David in Psalm 37. Rather than the guy who, uh, I might mention his name in a minute, we'll see. Who said in a speech at Turning Point USA, that's this conservative political thing with a bunch of Christians, I guess, involved in it. This guy said this, if we get together, they cannot cancel us all, okay? They won't. And this will be contrary to a lot of our beliefs because I'd love not to have to participate in cancel culture. I'd love that it didn't exist. But as long as it does, folks, we better be playing the same game, okay? We've been playing t-ball for half a century while they're playing hardball and cheating, Right? We've turned the other cheek, and I understand sort of the biblical reference. I understand the mentality, but it's gotten us nothing, okay? It's gotten us nothing while we've seeded ground in every major institution in our country. If you want to know who said that, ask me after. But to quote Jesus and say, you know, it doesn't work. It's got us nothing. Are we Christian people going to do that? Are we going to say we're going to abandon what Jesus said, what God says about trusting him and not taking matters in our own hands and resisting then the anger that goes with that and saying, you know, it doesn't work. Here's a pro tip for you. Don't get your theology from that guy. And I don't say that to be political per se or to, to make you mad, but to show the approach, friends, that, that many are taking with that and with other things. And it's going to get, it's going to continue, isn't it? It's going to continue into the next year. we got this election year coming. And you're going to be tempted to continue to fret because you continue to read and watch people who get paid to make you feel that way. Did you know that when you have something on your screen that constantly says breaking news, (laughs) if everything's breaking news, nothing's breaking news? Did you know that? It can't all be breaking news. It can't all be the end of the world, but they get paid to make you feel that way. And so if it were just this clown that I quoted earlier, I would ignore it, but the problem has been that it's been the attitude of far too many of us to fret, to get angry, and that leads to evil, as this passage says. Look, I know, and much more important, the Lord knows, that it looks like nice guys finish last. That's why the lament, the wicked prosper, is found on the lips of Job and so many others in Scripture but the response to what appears to be true is to remind ourselves of what is really true. I admit that it appears that nice guys finish last. But the reality is, the last will be first. And Jesus said that, and that works. So do you believe that? Now this psalm is somewhat hard to outline because it's structured around an acrostic involving the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There are about two verses, sometimes three, in each of the strophes that make up this psalm. With the next one starting with the next succeeding letter in the Hebrew alphabet to create a mnemonic aid to help memorize it but see since we're not reading Hebrew it really doesn't help us memorize it and therefore it looks more scattered than it was in original Hebrew but one clue to its organization for us is the several mentions of who will did you notice when Pastor Larry was reading inherit the land and so you have that in verse 11 in verse 22 28 29, 34. And each of those summarizes a a section of the psalm by saying, in effect, God's people win. It's not the wicked who inherit the land. It's the righteous. It's It's God's people who do that. And Jesus reminded us that God's people win in the Sermon on the Mount when he quoted this very psalm. You remember the Beatitudes, blessed are they, who? Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And that's a quote from verse 11 of this psalm. The meek will inherit the land. Now the word, Greek word translated earth in the NIV in Matthew 5:5, is a word that's translated earth, land, it could actually say exactly as Psalm 37, says, the meek will inherit the land but earth is perfectly fine as long as you understand that as this psalm as throughout the old testament it speaks of this promise of land and who's going to have it and god makes it very clear who it is that's going to have it but god's activity is going to be indeed on the earth and there will be other people there besides david and his descendants and his ancestors are jewish and israel and the israelite kingdom there will be other nations there inhabiting other parts of god's god's earth but god says i have promised this to you and i'm going to fulfill that promise you not they will inherit the land and further verse 29 says the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it now notice forever So I think it should be obvious that that hasn't happened as yet, the forever (laughs) peace, right? So there are lots of times where people try to go in scripture and they say, well, you know, that's the fulfillment of this promise made to Abraham. It was fulfilled later after Abraham with, you know, somebody else. But the forever peace hasn't happened as yet. Now, I have to say something about this just real quick. We're almost done. But with the activity over the last week in Israel, I would urge you in the strongest terms to resist the temptation to do what so many teachers try to do, and they try to map current events onto the Bible. That's a dangerous situation, to put it mildly. It may be, it may be, that God is using all of that in His providence to bring about what He says about making that area the focus of the land and to bring about end-time events and all that. That may be, but it may not be. (laughs) You know, there was about 2,000 years where the nation Israel did not exist at all. It exists now, not in the land that's described here, part of it, but not all of it. And further, it exists now in this sort of partial form, but not in the form that will inherit the kingdom. Because unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. There must be a revival in mass of the Jewish people so that, Romans 11 and verse 26, all Israel will be saved, God promises, in the end. But until that happens, the people that are in that partial land don't believe in their Messiah. And it's possible that they will be scattered again and will later, 1,000 years from now or 2,000 years from now, repopulate it. I have no idea. And see, friends, when I have no idea, here's what I say. I have no idea. I don't write a book. I don't sell tickets. I don't make money off it. I don't get people jazzed about it. We say what God says you're interested in this issue of kingdom and land and all of that i i cannot recommend highly enough a book called he will reign forever real thick goes through every passage in the bible about all of those issues i encourage you to read it if you have interest in that he will reign forever last name is Vlock, v-l-a-c-h i believe we have copies of it in our resource center But what these promises mean, friends, is that we win in the end. And whether we enjoy the journey until then depends entirely on how well we know God. We know Him best by trusting, delighting, committing our troubles to Him, being patient, being still while trusting His plan, and so refraining from taking matters into our own hands. And when that's the case with us, when our hearts are stilled before the Lord that we have come to know and know better, then we realize the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 4 that we need not be anxious about anything but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Know God. And then, so that you all can sleep tonight, Let you fill in the blanks. No God will judge. That's verses 12 through 22. 12 through 22. And then no God will bless. Verses 23 through 29. He will judge, 12 through 22. Bless, 23 through 29. He will defend. Verses 30 to 34. And he will deliver. 35 to 40. Here's your take-home truth. Those who know God can know the peace that God gives. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for gathering us, for giving us your word, for instructing us about how we can have peace and not fret in the midst of all that is happening around us. Help me, help us to appropriate and apply these truths to our lives so that we show something different in a world that is in chaos and is anxious, that we show the calmness and serenity, the peace of God that passes all understanding. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Just before we have our closing song, we have some folks who are going to, are looking to join our church. So if you guys will come forward.